0: Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants, and they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. women and men. Hello, this is episode 61 of the boys in short pants, the 62nd episode, I'm Laura Carbonell. All meets in Rainville. And uh, we had a busy weekend news this week with uh, the fall economic statement, a lot of, uh, of sort of hot-footed antics at both the Ontario provincial and federal stages. Um, So let's launch right into it Uh, On Tuesday, I believe, is that correct? Bill Morneau tabled uh, the Fall Economic Statement uh, Which announced $14 billion roughly of of spending I think it was Wednesday Wednesday, that actually sounds more correct Yes, it was Wednesday Carry on Uh, What is there that is interesting in the Fall Economic Statement?
1: So, okay The biggest thing going into the Fall Economic Statement was the government was positioning it around this idea of competitiveness. Right. And um, that's, I think, partially a reaction
0: to the large tax cut in the U.S. earlier this year for corporations that dropped their effective tax rate
1: considerably. Nearly exclusively a reaction. Yeah. Um, the government was hearing a lot of um, you know, discussion from business leaders, a lot of asking from business leaders. Yes. To sort of hoping to keep investment and business in Canada. Yeah. But there's always the worry about labor mobility and pushing jobs and businesses into a lower yeah. tax... Do you mean capital mobility? Sorry. Yes. The opposite it's of that? Labor, yes. yes. <laughs> um, into, into the United States. And so finance and Bill Morneau have been mulling what to do.
0: Yeah, because I think there is a... And this yeah, I don't base this off anything in, in particular that I've heard, but I, I get the sense... That because these tax changes in the U.S. were done in such a like partisan and rammed through fashion that they are unlikely to survive united democratic control of of the American government, which I think most people anticipate, you know, being not unlikely in the next like four or five years. Sure. So there's a sense that if they jump into doing exactly what the Americans have done, it's just going to be cutting a lot of revenue out despite a more than likely readjustment in sort of the next half decade in the U.S., which I, I think I, I sympathize with that. I think that's reasonably good analysis. So I think they found a lot of ways that are a lot less sticky than a big tax cut to do this.
1: Well, I mean, the primary way they did this um, was through accelerated capital, ca- capital cost allowances, right? which basically make it so that businesses, particularly manufacturers and clean tech, can write off the uh purchase of equipment yeah quicker and so it encourages them to invest in machinery it, it is and really, equipment yeah. for efficiency purposes for development of their company they, they picked they
0: really chose for productivity i guess like and really what is purely going to be like capital spending in the true sense rather than capital spending as like share buybacks or something
1: so that was one of the biggest spends in it um the other piece to that, which has had less discussion, is the regulatory package, um, where the government has sort of recommitted itself to regulatory harmonization, regulatory simplification, things along those lines. I think, I mean, the government has been doing regulatory uh, simplification for a while under, are we at a one-for-one one rule or two-for-one? I can't remember.
0: I think we are currently at a two-for-one. I think
1: we're at a one-for-one.
0: Um, Uh, we were two for one with Harper, weren't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh
1: yeah. Sorry. I got the ratio that way around. Yes. Yes. So what, what that means is for every, uh, burdensome regulation introduced by the government, they're supposed to review their books and find another regulation that can be trimmed. Yeah. And like generally people in government and elsewhere think that this is really good. Um, a lot of regulation piles up over the years, um, what the correct ratio, who knows, yeah. uh, Trump had discussed trying to do, I think, a, a four-to-one or a three-to-one at some point. Um, but generally, the one-for-one one rules, you know, not, not overly frowned upon, but the difference between that and what was uh, developed in the fall economic statement is really the comprehensive nature of it. If you do something on a one for one, you're sort of doing it in an ad hoc basis, like, oh quick, someone find me one thing that we can cut or scrap uh to make things easier rather than looking at things more holistically. Yeah. Um so that was the intent of sort of the regulatory announcement in the fall economic statement is to say, I mean, they even prioritized industries so it's like let's look at this industry and let's have a full review of which regs are really yeah. slowing things down.
0: But let's be real here: uh, absolutely no one is talking about competitiveness or regulatory harmonization. Everyone is talking about journalism.
1: Well, okay, let's actually
0: pump the brakes on that. Well, I mean, no, I think but... that's yeah. I mean, I'm sure the business community in parts is, is pretty jazzed about it. And like, I think it's reason a, a very reasonable step to take, frankly, in the face. I mean. From my point of view, you know, you can look at a lot of the stuff and call it corporate welfare. That stuff that's not just the, the capital um, capital cost allowance um, credit. I think that's like a reasonable step take. There's a lot in here that's money to various innovation funds, whether they be strategic innovation funds or salmon recovery and innovation funds. Like there's a lot of kind of classic liberal corporatist sort of stuff here, too. Um But more broadly, like, this has not really been the focus of the discussion on the fall economic statement.
1: No, and that's basically what I want to talk about um, briefly before we actually go into the journalism piece, is that when you do something like this, and it's been, I think, rightfully termed a mini-budget because it has a lot more spending and a lot more measures than typical fall economic statements have previously. you look at the spends and sort of the dividend the government gets back in sort of immediate goodwill and popularity. Um, and for all of the spends, like you have uh, $800 million for SIF, which is the Strategic Innovation Fund, which is a huge amount. Yeah, it is a big, uh, big, big chunk of change. Let's round it up. Let's call it a billion dollars. Yeah. And no one, has, no one has talked about that. Yeah. That's not, you know, move the needle on anything. Instead it's maybe the third or fourth biggest span is the journalism one which is receiving all of the media yeah and that's um, about I mean it implicates the media so yes. that that comes yeah, so somewhat I mean, naturally
0: journalists are not are nothing if not a bit
1: navel gazing but it is only one piece of it yes. and it's not getting a ton of good response i mean it's triggered a debate no matter what side of the debate you stand on there has been a substantial amount of negative coverage you have uh, huge columnists, your Andrew Coins and your Paul Wells, uh, taking chunks out of it. So, I mean, trying to view this as a win for the government broadly, I think the business community has basically stopped talking about their accelerated capital cost allowance. Yeah, And the only debate that's left is the debate that's been triggered as to whether or not journalism will be biased as a result of uh, $600 million over, I think, five years.
0: Yeah, and personally, I think that's a cheap buy, frankly, to buy a, the news media of a country, but yeah, I, I think that's probably
1: there. Okay, I mean... Hey, we still get upset about politicians being purchased over $1,500 tickets to I would say pathetic e- fundraisers. I would say it's
0: easier to buy a politician than it is an entire news ecosystem. I think that's like probably the case.
1: Well, let's dig into the uh journalism bit now but before we do let me just read off some of the different things um that were included in uh the fall economic statement and we've alluded to some of them the strategic innovation fund got 800 million over five years uh there was money for clean tech venture capital uh 50 million there consumer protection in banking measures uh largely targeted around seniors i believe uh, funding for their pay equity legislation. So it's unclear if that's new
0: funding or not.
1: Yes. Well, yeah. The Charity Advisory Committee, $4.6 Yeah. to make that. Uh, social financing is actually a pretty interesting concept. Uh, feel free to look that up. Uh, $755 million over 10 years. The Francophone Digital Platform, Um 14.6 over 5 for them. Nutrition North funding. Yeah, which is good. That That is an ambiguously good thing. Avalanche safety funding. Woo! Um, payment for government construction contractors. Uh, two fish funds. One uh, as high as 107 mil can over you, 5 can you years. Name, can
0: you read the name of the BC one again? Just, I love it.
1: Uh, the, the
0: Salmon Restoration and Innovation Fund. I think it's... is the, that... uh, a British Columbia
1: Salmon Restoration and Innovation. Farm. I love that
0: they just like they just had to throw innovation in it there good It is for, for innovative salmon, yeah, it exactly, the entrepreneurial salmon, the new generation. We're of salmon. finding new
1: places to spawn. they are not <laughs> going back to that same old place again and again and again. <laughs> you know, they're getting off the uh, the government teat. <laughs> Uh, tax changes around competitive. The mineral exploration tax credit has been pumped up again or renewed. Yeah, which once again, if um, you're talking about
0: the environmentalist credentials of this government, I think encouraging further mineral exploration is
1: you know, mining is is has its has its ecological impacts. To continue, 773 million over five for ports. Woo! Um, very good for the national Wonderful. corridors fund. Uh, mid tax which are my tax mid tax uh, internship money uh, money to pump up the trade commissioners uh... Re- the regulatory efficiency piece that we mentioned and
0: it seems terrible to give more away to the trade commissioners but not protect the embassies <laughs> from benghazi too
1: well yeah i mean that's another thing that i guess is not on the agenda to talk about but there was the recent auditor general report yes uh, which reports what, well yes
0: but one of them was specifically about embassy safety
1: and how we are failing to do embassy safety well yeah um
0: Wow. We are we are happy to announce that we are putting Hillary Clinton in
1: charge of embassy safety. <laughs> yes, happy really, to announce the consultation committee on embassy safety. Yeah,
0: um, what so, difference does it make? <laughs> so
1: that's just a sense of all the different areas covered in it and why this is, you know, called a mini budget more so than a fall economic statement. Um, but to go back now to the journalism piece, um, so altogether there's three different components to it and it's priced out at around. 595 million over five. Do you want to tell us about the different parts, Laura?
0: One of them is basically allowing journalists or journalism organizations to be charitable and issue charitable donation receipts uh, as any other charity would do. Uh, One of them is a refundable tax credit for news organizations to pay, uh, well, to produce content, basically. And the last one is a non refundable tax credit for eligible digital subscriptions, I believe. Is that all correct? Yeah, so on I like to, one, I like the pop quiz there.
1: You're the one with it in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> this is how it works. I'm the teacher, you're the student. You, you have to perform. Um, yeah, so it's a 15% tax credit for subscribers of eligible digital news media. So now is the time to subscribe. Um, yes, use offer code SHORTPIN. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I mean, you won't, it won't, nothing will happen, but feel free to use it. <laughs> So, I I mean, I could probably look at the tables at the bottom of this and find out how much the government anticipates is going into each of those. But I think it goes without saying um, that the tax credit towards news organizations and labor is probably by several times the largest portion of that. Yeah, Um, that seems reasonable. As opposed to the tax credit for 15% of whatever you're spending on... Yeah. Wasn't this the
0: government that was supposed to ax a whole bunch of tax credits because they were kind of dumb and not a good way to do public policy? Well, why, yes, Laurent. They had a (laughs) panel on tax, on uh,
1: reviewing tax expenditures. Yeah. I think I can only name one that they ever asked, which was the transit tax credit. Oh uh, no, there's a few others. There's a couple really, yeah,
0: because they 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 increased other student benefits and got rid of the tuition
1: and textbooks. Textbook. Yeah, so you're right. We have, uh,
0: and I believe they also ended the sports one, the you know the, the one that Justin Trudeau's war against hockey moms. Kelly uh, Lynch
1: um, was actually one of the originators of that tax credit, or her work was rather. Um, so we have, yeah, sports, uh, students, and transit have all been axed, but none of the actual major problematic yeah. or none of the largest tax expenditures or tax credits have been uh, yeah. chopped. Well, it's because people like them. Um, it, I mean, <laughs> it's it like, is, at it, the end of the day, it's, it's because they have constituencies that yes. go to bat for them. Yeah. Um, but we're back to. I mean, we're going to have one for your Logic subscription or your National Post subscription. Wow, really go niche there. I don't. With apologies to a friend of the
0: show, Sean Craig. <laughs> give Give them a little bump. They do good work. They do good. They do excellent work, actually. I think you can do far worse in terms of digital subscriptions.
1: Okay, so let, let's come back to the broader debate on what five hundred ninety-five million means for Canadian media. Period. Yeah. Um, there have been individuals like Mister Godfrey. Um, who said that we should be running around cheering from the rooftops and popping you know, $200 yes. bottles of, I was going to say Perrier, but that's not what I want. No,
0: that if you're paying $200 for a bottle of Perrier, you're
1: getting <laughs> ripped off. No, Dom Perignon is what I was thinking. Yeah, that you were, that's a very Etienne All, mistake to make. $200 <laughs> is probably not getting you very good, Dom Perignon. Um, but that's sort of the, the Godfrey um, response to it. I'm sure Canaland will have their... Uh, take on it coming out shortly yes um the responses really range where do you land
0: i am kind okay here's my weird take on this is that i think journalism broadly is a public good and it's important
1: i would agree with that
0: i think that we have a public broadcaster whose job it is to report the news i think it broadly does a good job i think it has adventures in other parts of the sort of digital entertainment and media entertainment ecosystem that are that are less successful, I think a refocus on core mandate with an increase in core funding would be a reasonable approach to this. I don't... I actually think a charity conversion is perhaps the worst way to do this I can think of, frankly. Because when you're talking about charities, you're talking about offloading public policy from the realm of democratic policy to the realm of what do rich people feel like supporting that day and this is why i don't think charity is a model for social services and it certainly shouldn't be a model for the public you know font of information either
1: so on on that point specifically there are i mean this model already exists in the united states yeah can i can i add one other thing too charitable news media yes. orgs like ProPublica. I was about to
0: say ProPublica does actually excellent work and is perhaps the exception this I can think of but once again though when you're a news organization that runs on on a charitable basis you probably face a lot of pressure not to report critically on the people who fund you and if that's big foundations you you're not going to want to report on investments they've made in other areas or the investments that they're Major donors have made in other areas. It just opens up a whole lot of issues on how you sort of do your job.
1: But don't those issues exist essentially with every news organization? I, I mean, think, with
0: every... the exception of publicly funded ones, yes.
1: Well, okay, then Because I was, I was going. I was going to... Why is publicly funded the exception? Right? Because that—that's the entire basis of this argument. Yes, is saying that is the CBC as investigative of the federal government? Will uh, news organizations receiving their? Uh, lifeblood now from the federal government in terms of this tax yes. credit. Okay. Be unbiased in their coverage in any way that is different than the concerns you're expressing. Yeah, sure. As to whether or not the Chronicle Herald is examining the Irvings with enough. <laughs> well, scrutiny. and
0: actually, this is that. This is a great example to bring up because if you look at their their neighbor, Brunswick News, right when Irving had a major refinery explosion in Saint John, New Brunswick, you had the pay the front page of the Irving owned. Uh, I think it, I don't remember the name of the St. John newspaper. It might be the telegram as well. I think it is the telegram. Uh, was Thanksgiving Miracle. Beca- Telegraph. Telegraph. Thank you. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it was it, like, that's ridiculous, right? No genuine like news organization that actually has any kind of like real independence would report on something at the biggest employer in the province having a catastrophic and life-threatening explosion. Uh, like it's just like completely ridiculous. So okay, to so circle well, back wait, around. Wait, 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 wait. Go ahead. You,
1: you can't you can't leave that point without without this plug. Um, so Jacques Poitras has a book called Irving versus Irving, where he actually tackles the history largely of uh, the Irving owned newspapers in the province. Yes, and he
0: is actually a CBC journalist in New Brunswick, and, and
1: has done written fantastic books about New Brunswick's political history. Well, yeah, as so, well as being a, a this, very good journalist. This there. is one of them, and he goes into significant depths at the newspapers over various iterations, different editors, yeah. um, as to how much influence the Irvings had and sort of their narrative the entire time is we never really told them what to do. There were a few exceptional examples, um, but in them not telling were journalists there too cautious, were they influenced in, and yeah. you know Well see, this is this is the point I was gonna make centrally, which is that
0: journalists at themselves, like the people who report the news, are sort of because they got into the job people who are curious and want to to know more and learn things like they, they had they're dogged and like generally speaking as a sort of like mark of their their profession like want to get to the bottom of things uh the the issue comes with the, the ownership and the editorial influence of the ownership right and i think that's where you run into problems it's not with the journalists themselves and i think like when people talk about the cbc i think the CBC as far as i know generally speaking does not have a culture of like the government stepping in and telling the editors how to run things i think they, they've made a lot of mistakes i think just recently there was this issue with a credit like a very critical um radio piece about either google or facebook that facebook. was then sort of yeah facebook thank you that was then like not sort of like run on the website and it, that was that was very bad but i think once again though uh It's not a perfect news organization. It's a human organization, but at the end of the day, it's much more publicly accountable than something that belongs to a hedge fund like Post Media does, right? Like Post Media. Also, this is the political economy aspect of this. Is this is a huge transfer of wealth to American bondholders, basically? Let me
1: disagree heartily with you on that point. Okay, go ahead. You said it's much more accountable. Yeah, is CBC more accountable? I would say no. I would say it's in fact less accountable. Um, because with a private media org, you are accountable to your readers because they are paying for subscriptions or visiting the website. For advertisers. Time. And I mean, this has, uh, well,
0: weird, no, but this, the question this, this is, this
1: creates who... weird incentives like clickbait and things along those But slides. to
0: whom are you accountable, right? It's not readers generally because people don't make a lot of money on subscriptions anymore. It's advertisers.
1: Well, that's, a, I mean disagree with depends depends what part of the media market sure what part of the media market but increasingly we're seeing and this is one of the examples the logic again yeah organizations that are entirely rely or entirely based around subscription model um with a like solid solid paywall yeah. and high subscription prices and they are accountable to yeah. their readers no, and because that's, losing yes. subscriptions there yeah. is losing a substantial amount of money
0: and i agree with that but i think that's a relatively small portion of like and that's a very also that works for like, and that's always been the model for like trade publications uh, because they have they their job is to get information that people need to do their jobs. Right. Like, yes. Yeah. So that's not your general news readership.
1: Yes. And no, I think, I mean, we're obviously at a point of transition in media broadly, but particularly Canadian media. And I think that I sort of fall on the side of letting some of the forest burn down to create that light through the canopy so that new trees can sprout out.
0: i have no real issue with that and i think that's kind of the problem one of the problems with what is happening with this sort of like journalism bailout is that you're basically just giving a big subsidy to the owners of the Globe and mail the star and the national post and post media more broadly and once again to reiterate the ownership of especially post media because of how indebted it is is mostly american hedge funds so Right, like you, that's who's really making money here, and Paul Godfrey with his enormous uh, compensation package um, that he gets for firing a bunch of journalists all the time. So yeah, I mean that I think it would be healthier if there was a sort of like to some degree a burn down and regrowth uh, of of the big sort of media edifice in the country. I think CBC, like I have my share of issues with CBC. God knows, like I think it, it often gets things wrong uh in terms of like tone i can remember like the they got real yelled at um after the election the presidential election in brazil when they said you know oh like what will this mean for Canadian like that was a bad look and they got yelled at um so no like they're, they're not perfect i just think that ultimately you are much more able to have a good independent source of news if it's publicly funded um and you know accountable to i think The public, I think it's how you do that is always important. And I think like
1: CBC obviously can do better. I I still just don't think we see that much accountability at the CBC for when things go wrong. No, look, I I think think
0: I'd be the last person to say CBC is like super, super good. I think it has a lot of issues. But I think ultimately you are much more able to have an accountable model through public funding than through any other model. Uh, I mean, this is the thing, right? Is like charitable ones or for-profit ones are very accountable. But it's like the the accountable to whom part is the important part. That's... That's my take.
1: I somewhat disagree. Okay,
0: okay that's fine.
1: Um, look, before, <laughs> before we transition, what are the top three shows at the CBC that you would cut day one if you were president? Uh, I would bring back This Is That.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tian's least favorite show. Um, I don't know. I don't really listen to the radio at all. So, uh, it's hard. I would cut CBC Opinion. I would cut CBC Comedy. And I would ax a lot of the TV programming.
1: Tapestry i've never listened to it done no opinion sunday night blues done is
0: that like a blues radio show yes like well, no we got to keep that that's awesome writers and company done there's a great show a blues show um i think it was called weekend blues uh every like friday saturday sunday night uh my local or um npr affiliate in seattle it was great i want more of that so you tell me there's a cbc equivalent yeah, Sweet, necklace, hell yeah. It's, it's terrible. Oh, I gotta check this out. It's awful. Sounds great. All right, what's next? Uh, what's next? Uh, well, you wanted to talk about the provisional implementation of taxation a little bit,
1: tangentially to the FES. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It, this could not sound uh, like a more boring topic, but I promise you that it is. It's That's actually, it's a little piquant. A little piquant. Um, so, actually, the reason I find this interesting, let me, let me tell this story, is I was once on a bus full of senators uh coming back from something um and the senators had had a little bit to drink As and we they were arguing i think i can't remember the topic i think it was about uh tax free savings accounts and it was about the increase from 5000 to 10000 and they were talking about how think this it might have been a different one but i think it was this anyways they were talking about how this was already taking effect um even though the legislation hadn't gone through the senate um and what this relates back to is a sort of unique characteristic of our system which allows for the provisional, provisional implementation and of taxation taxes. and so basically when you have a bill like the or the the bill that accompanied the fall economic statement. I, I don't know the number offhand, um, but you have a ways a notice of ways and means motion, and the that basically happens on day one. And with the tabling of that notice of ways and means motion, the tax measures that you have proposed basically take effect. Um, apparently, it's quote unquote voluntary, and the rationale for this is you know once upon a time taxes were largely excise or in other forms and say you were wanting to introduce an excise tax on hay um, waiting for the bill to be tabled and passed through the legislature would create all sorts of runs on hay if you were increasing it right. by 20 percent or whatever. that makes have a you. lot of sense yes um, so you basically have to catch people with their pants down. With their pants down. By yeah, and sur- grabbing for a piece of hay, for instance, to, to wipe their bones. <laughs> <laughs> the price of which will go up, so... By surprise. And so our tax, like, typically, like, when when you're taught this in uh, social studies or whatever, the humanities, um, when whatever the courses are... That- <laughs> whatever class is in oil drilling these days <laughs> and they're teaching kids. No, yeah, no, whatever the course are called, history or whatever... <laughs> Um, people talk about you know the supremacy of the legislature and the need for the bill to go through the legislature through the senate well, for it to actually yeah, take effect and become law. The whole
0: Magna Carta thing, right, is the the whole principle of like the parliament approves taxes.
1: Yes, yeah. but we actually don't really subscribe to that in in whole because we have this workaround and the government has or committees have studied this and they always oppose it but they never Um, introduce or recommend particularly good solutions for it. Mm -hmm. Um, So what we have is the ability to introduce taxes immediately um, with the expectation that the bill will eventually become law. Do you know if this feature is unique to Canadian Parliament or if it's also the case in the UK? I think it is also the case in the Mother Parliament. I would love to know what the
0: origin of that there is because I think there you do have an... because we're talking here about the supremacy of Parliament. I think there if you say... If a money bill originates in parliament, you can just sort of start collecting it on the executive side. And that like the crown would not have been involved in that in the sort of direct sense. Right. Like it's not like the governor general says we have a new tax and here it is. Start collecting. It's parliament saying we should have this new tax. And then they start collecting. And like I can see that kind of making more sense from a historical perspective. But I would I would love to know what the origins of that are and perhaps we will discuss this in a future episode because I'm curious about it
1: so for those wondering the problem this introduces is if you have an election before that budget implementation act or whatever whatever yeah. the piece of legislation is um, that uh, legitimizes these taxes yeah then the legislature is dissolved see that's an interesting thing too because and one... and that tax has now been collected yeah without any supporting legislation so I mean, with some taxes, it are easier to, to yeah. Remit if it's an income others. tax hike, you
0: can just sort of remit the difference quite easily. But, yeah. but
1: if it's an excise tax, what do you do? Uh, yeah,
0: you could sort of do a GST style thing where you sort of like estimate what it would cost sprinkle people. Sprinkle it back. Yeah, there, exactly. Yeah. You could do that. It would be kind of awkward, but I mean, that's I think that's what you would have to do.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, but to come back to the, the point about there being an election before um, or dissolution, I guess before the legislation passing. I think this is another interesting view to where this could have originated in the UK, uh, because there you would have parliaments sit until they were dissolved, right? There wasn't a set mm. dissolution date. So you had the long parliament in 1640 that sat in some form or another for like you know 20 years, uh, though it was purged forcibly at several junctures. But like, formally, it was actually the long parliament. This is actually really fascinating. The long parliament uh, started sitting in 1640 and uh went through the entire series of english civil wars uh charles i was beheaded uh parliament was purged by by thomas pride and and oliver cromwell and then in 1660 on the restoration of king charles ii uh they actually recalled the long parliament to sort of uh participate in the sort of coronation and uh, accession of the new monarch because it was still the sitting parliament last called by charles I. so fascinating historical out there
1: we used to do a and d game centered around the Long Parliament.
0: That would actually be really cool. I'm open to that. Uh, yeah, no, this, uh, that would be sweet. Uh, anyway, sorry. So that's, a, I just think, a really, really cool piece of history. So PBO is the other thing we want to talk about uh I, I mean you can lead on this one the office of the parliamentary budget officer uh as we discussed uh, previously and i think has actually had an interview with uh someone from the, or from about yeah. the parliamentary budget yes. office uh or the office of the parliamentary budget officer rather very early uh, on. with someone from uh university of ottawa that you can listen to is in our first 10 episodes or so um but yes, yeah, so they were in last year's budget implementation act were given the mandate or and and the duty to consult with political parties and do costing of platform items um, and yesterday, uh, the Office of the Parliamentary Budget Officer released a paper, uh, outlining kind of how that would work. Um, and I think my, my impression is that they are going to be frantically, they're not a very big organization and are being given a really, really big job to do with, as far as I can tell, not that much extra funding for it. Um, and they will be scrambling to, to do as much as they can, I think in advance of what is going to be very hectic and, uh, quite dramatic election uh, in terms of, of a lot of what's going to be on offer, I think.
1: Uh, okay, so when the Liberals introduced this legislation, I think it was I mean, there were certain members in the policymaking community who were highly skeptical of it, and yeah. there were various pieces written about sort of the the challenge that this made for P, uh, for PBO, be it the politicization of PBO or simple logistical things. Uh, Dr. Jennifer Robson wrote a piece on it that talked about you know, the potential gamification of gumming up the works with all sorts of asks so that other parties could not get through um, their requests. Yes. So PBO has since uh, taken the time to put together what is essentially a 56-page document. I mean, it is not essentially a 56-page document. It is a (laughs) 56-page document. (laughs)
0: Fine. It is essentially a user's guide to how this will work, I think, rather than a... A better approach there.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point of criticism. Yes. Um, to Sorry, now I lost my train of thought. Sorry. Um, basically, to lay out the rules of the game. Um, how like timelines, how um, to make a request, what can be requested, what to expect from a request, the types of modeling available, if it requires trade data, if it requires finance data, if it's... Uh, gonna um if your policy in question is going to interact with any other policy that you're yeah. going to introduce so i mean costing any policy is basically immensely complicated yep. um and the pbo actually has a reasonably short window in which to do this yes um, that's
0: really the, the constraint here i think more than anything else it's it's there be given a lot from from three parties well this is another fascinating thing actually i think we should we should lead off with is that this is only going to be open to because the office of the parliamentary budget officer is a officer of the house of commons is going to be recognized parties in the house of commons, which is say liberals, conservatives, NDP, the greens, uh, block and, uh, people's party and the CCF in the person of Aaron Weir, uh, will not have access to this service. That's not true. It is. It's not, they can, they can make individual requests, but they don't have access to the special election window that it, it like, they can make requests as normal for policies, Uh, but they cannot make use of this, like, special election period window.
1: I think you're wrong. I think I'm not. Pause the
0: tape. We're coming back. We're going to come back. So, Laurent, what did we discover? We discovered that, according to Section 79.211 of the Parliament of Canada Act, as per the last year's Budget Implementation Act, during the period described in Subsection 2, the Parliamentary Budget Officer shall, at the request of an authorized representative or a member Estimate the financial cost of any election campaign proposal that the authorized representatives party or the member is considering
1: (laughs) making. So Tiana's right. Woo! Nailed it. Um... So what that means is that Bernier, the Bloc Québécois, the CCF will all have the act. Yeah. will all have access to requesting.
0: Yes, though basically what they say is please have one person do this instead which of yeah. Very. Yeah. That seems fair. The, the
1: Bloc <laughs> Québécois should not have all of their what is it nine seven five. Whoever whatever we, it is. changes every day. Um, MP is sending requests independently of each other. Yeah, which...
0: I'm really sad that Quebec
1: Correct doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> Rest in peace. Yeah, Quebec to um. So, shit, where are we on the broader conversation now? Uh,
0: sort of like what this means, why people are angry about it now, what why people aren't angry about it now. I mean, I just think that, like, this is a huge stress on a kind of understaffed and underfinanced office. Um, I think a lot of the worries that we had earlier on about sort of like the vexatious or like dickish requests to sort of like look at other people's, Policy platforms, I think, is is mitigated somewhat
1: by the, the approach they are taking to this. Yes, I mean, they include a line that was my first question um, when I read through the document was what prevents parties from um, trying to cost parts of yeah other sort of a hostile <laughs> yeah <laughs> the, the hostile costing yeah um, but it, I mean okay so this is actually what I think is the most interesting part of it. Um, we say that, we laugh, and then we, we look in the document and realize that there is a, a part in there that says PBO won't be happy with you if you try and cost other people's platforms. Yeah. But fundamentally, that's sort of the role that PBO exists for outside of the rip period. Um, an example of this is when Pierre Polyev requested that PBO cost universal basic income. Yeah. This was not because Pierre Polyev has a great fondness for universal basic income. It was largely to be able to have facts and figures to point to to say this is an, yeah to, a, to own the libs really, an, is an expensive yeah. any costly proposal yeah. and we should uh, we should have a fair uh, I mean a number to work with when when we're talking about this sort of thing yeah um, so I mean outside of the rip period it seems as if MPs are in fact encouraged to use it to cost other people's platforms or just policies that come to their mind yeah
0: i mean this in general was a policy that was i think implemented because parties themselves do not have the kind of financing they need to do intensive incredible policy work over a any time horizon but really especially
1: a tight one so fundamentally that's my problem with the entire thing is it's not that parties don't have the budgets to do policy work is that they don't have the incentives to do policy work, right? I
0: don't only have the budgets either.
1: The parties run million-dollar budget, uh, 20, yeah, 30 but like million dollars. Yeah. They do have, but I mean, the, the difference here is, it's not that the parties don't have Well, maybe you're talking about the NDP. That's, that's a very different case, <laughs> because then they genuinely do not have the money. But if the Conservatives and the Liberals were inclined towards um, using money towards policy development, they certainly could. But the answer is they're not because they don't need to be. Um, And they would much rather put every single dollar they have towards running campaigns. Well, okay, I
0: agree with the latter half of that. I think everyone would benefit if parties did have access to a sort of like stable long-term source of funding that they could do kind of intensive policy development and research that is currently done by a handful of fairly understaffed and underfinanced think tanks in Canada that are aligned broadly with parties' ideological objectives, but more or less with the parties themselves, depending on the organization. Um, I think I've mentioned this before, but Germany has a weird model where you basically... Every party over a certain threshold gets a foundation that they get to have that gets a certain... Doesn't the UK do this as well? uh, Not quite the same way, but similar. Uh, I just know how the German system works because I was exposed to it when I went to Germany this summer uh, on a trip... um, that was organized by one of these party organizations, actually. Um, so they they basically get a certain amount of funding based on like an average of the party's electoral performance of the last five elections or something like that. Um, which is you know it's basically predictable. Like even if it if it fluctuates a bit over time, it's it's more or less predictable. So and those do a lot of work in terms of doing a lot of research, uh, both at the sort of direct like you know people you know making uh doing research reports and also just kind of having ongoing policy research into different areas of the world and comparative analyses and that kind of stuff it's pretty comprehensive we just do not have anything like that like not anywhere close and like i think there is an aversion here to financing basically people really think that politics should be done with as little money as possible in this country And I think with looking at the model of the U.S. where you have possibly an overfinanced political system, there is, I think, a reasonable apprehension. But if you look at the sort of continental European systems or even the U.K. system, there's a much sort of saner approach that like people get that like having a team of people ready to run the country at the drop of a hat kind of like costs money. Um so people need money to to do this and be ready to do it. So I, I think personally if especially I think we we were saying that there, there's been a bit of negative reception to this because they're concerned that because people are the, the PBO is going to have to go to you know departments to get data that it's going to somehow favor the incumbents, it's like it, there's no other way to do this, but like if we like you can't avoid the central, Problem of if you're going to work off government data, you need to interact with the government in some capacity. And I think if we, if you want to stop, if you want to take the worry out of this and say, okay, PBO, we're not going to force you to do what is essentially it's it's partisan work done in a nonpartisan way, right? Like it's it's, it's development, but like just let parties do it through sort of like arm's length but still party controlled organizations that actually have the mandate and funding to do this job properly over the long term like it just makes more sense
1: i actually quite agree with that um i would use it a little bit more as a hammer for the progressive types who want to fund political parties through things like the ProVote subsidy yeah um but without any thought towards the actual creation of policy development yeah um, well, institutions it, in Canada. Can, can I make if a, we just put more well wait no go ahead, you, me, go you ahead. Do, no, you do not. <laughs> if we just put more money in the hands of uh, in the hands of parties through things like the vote subsidy, which is what progressive parties in Canada seem to want to do. yeah. Um, whenever they get in power, they talk about bringing back the provoked subsidy because it benefits them in various ways. But the answer is always so or the reasoning for this is always so that they can campaign on more public money rather than actually develop more comprehensive policy. There's not a recognition by parties of anywhere, provincial, federally, yeah. that there's a, you know, an absent... I mean, I guess the liberals recognize it to an extent with this PBO proposal. It's perhaps just not the best approach. Yeah. Um, but that there needs to be a greater capacity for parties to develop more policy. Yeah. Um, otherwise... No, because... They're yeah, we just, just going to run on the yeah. same basic tax breaks, this, this, yeah. and this, because they don't have the depth on their benches to actually come up with yeah. substantively well, new no yeah. ideas. And
0: this is why these organizations are sort of like funded independently through the legislature basically. Yeah. By a sort of like formula basis that everyone can see, right? It's sort of like you know how much funding they're gonna get. Um, and I think further to this, right, is another issue that's come up recently of pursuant to, to doing politics on the cheap is there's been so much discussion. And you saw probably the CSE report that came out about, you know, vulnerabilities in Canada's democracy to the sort of cyber interference from sure. foreign actors and even, you know, non-foreign actors. It, it's parties are the weak point, right? And people are like, oh, well, you know, parties should spend more on cybersecurity. I'm like, no, people – parties are not going to spend more on cybersecurity if they have to, like, compromise – campaign funding as you say like it's you just like people need to recognize that like running national organizations that have to do the job of preparing to be in government like just it has a price tag and like we are not willing to pay that or even reckon with the question in a realistic way in this country
1: so i would agree with all of that um i would just add that when parties are doing that internal calculation of saying um we could upgrade our computer systems that's going to cost a million dollars yeah
0: or we could fund you know credible campaigns in like 35 writings
1: or, like it's, it's... <laughs> but where where this trade-off actually becomes really interesting is i think that's sort of the first step thought second step thought is if you do have documents hacked from your political party during the federal election campaign how much are you spending during that campaign I, I don't know if like per, 120, party, mil,
0: 120 million Something like that Well no each
1: Oh each okay uh, Per party let's, let's Sort of a rule of thumb here I'll use about a million dollars a day Right Yeah If you have hacked documents Coming out of your party That puts you off message For two three days Because yeah, a... Because you didn't have Two factor authentication because, because 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 Yeah Then that Cost Is now millions of dollars In terms of messaging That is Just thrown in the trash Yeah Um, So I think that is where parties need to consider when it comes to investing, particularly in cyber infrastructure, is how much it costs them if this goes poorly. Yeah. Because it's easy to say, no, we're not going to invest. We're going to put it all into the campaign. um, And then we'll just hope and pray and everyone gets hacked anyways and be, be fatalistic about it. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, there is, there is a cost in terms of your messaging that you're yeah. going to lose and messaging costs money. Yeah. I mean, this is what people say about doing something about climate change too, is that the catastrophic damage from, uh,
0: anyway, we'll get to that another time.
1: Um, <laughs> you're reaching a straws there. I don't think so.
0: Um, speaking of fatalistic approaches um yeah so i think i don't know i think it's just like this is a band-aid solution to a gaping wound problem uh except it's a gaping wound that no one really wants to acknowledge is really there um and like i I, I, it's not popular to call for funding for parties right because people don't have a good perception of political parties i think often for
1: reasonable kind of reasons well Um, i mean it's because politics is the one area where we allow people to openly attack each other their entire yeah like their entire existence
0: Yeah. adversarial
1: and and that results in a lack of trust fundamentally over the long run
0: well and also it's just like like most people do not see it as a a good thing right like being political about something is not some like not something people would say to be a point of praise right like it's just like i'm sorry but at the end of the day like if you want to like you can live in a system that isn't political but it doesn't look anything like a democracy right like it's just like you're just gonna have to accept that like you're not gonna like everything and like it's gonna cost some money and that's like ultimately kind of fine and just like we should just bite the bullet on it and just do this sensible way instead of like this weird halfway with like an underfunded organization that really has better things to be doing
1: anyway that's uh yeah let's leave it there what's next
0: um a little bit about uh cabinet solidarity which is a concept in our system, and I believe pretty... pretty Well, actually, I would say in the UK as well, but uh, it has been sorely <laughs> tested in the UK in the last couple of months, where if you are a member of cabinet, uh, you can say whatever you want in the cabinet room. You can disagree as vociferously with your colleagues as you want in the cabinet room, but when you guys leave and a decision has been made, you have to stand with your colleagues and say, this is our decision, and you have to be... You have to fight for it like you'd fight for, for your own child. Like it's That's the expectation of you as a cabinet minister. Um, I believe in raising my child so that they can fight for themselves. Good, good. Um, this has come up in this week, just between us, and I don't know if anyone else has touched on this in the broader ecosystem, but uh, parliamentary secretaries are... I am not actually sure if they are covered by this principle or not, because it's not... I, I don't think it's written anywhere that you have to do this.
1: Well, um, I mean, I think... I think the name of the principle actually sort of cuts to your answer. Yeah. And that it's called cabinet solidarity, not... Parliamentary
0: secretary, but yeah. Not
1: cabinet and parliamentary secretary solidarity. Yeah. Doesn't roll off the tongue quite as well.
0: No, it doesn't. Uh, But we've had an instance or two instances, both at the provincial and federal levels this week, of uh, parliamentary secretaries who are sort of adjuncts to the minister, uh, who are also themselves members of the legislature, uh, sort of going offside On government policy uh, At the provincial level in Ontario You had Amanda Simard The uh, parliamentary secretary for francophone affairs Go completely against uh, The PC government's Planned cuts to the uh, French language services commissioner And the French language university um, Which we can Debate the merits of <laughs> another time Etienne. Um, But But Yeah, so that's quite unprecedented uh, because, you know, typically if you're going to get someone to be parliamentary secretary, you assume that they're sort of on board with the broad strokes of what you're doing in that policy file. Um, So that was one case. And then actually just last night, I believe, uh, we were recording this on Saturday the 24th. So during the consideration of the government's back to work legislation for uh, Canada Post, C-89, C-89, you had a liberal parliamentary secretary for justice, Arif Virani, vote against the government. Um, So... It will be really interesting, I think, to see what happens, especially in the federal case. I think in the Ontario PC case, they are playing things much faster and looser with these kinds of things. And it remains to be seen whether this person may or may not cross the floor in the next week. I think she's supposed to be on Tune Monapel tomorrow. Yeah, so so let's see what happens there. That's an opportunity. This may become a moot point very, very soon in her case. But certainly with Mr. Virani there, um, who's a Toronto area MP... It will be interesting to see if he's relieved of his duties as a Parliamentary Secretary for voting against the government on a government
1: bill. I Um, mean, it seems likely. I I think it's very likely. It seems incredibly probable, in fact. Yeah. Um, We have seen uh, MPs punished for very similar things in the Liberal government. Yeah. Um, Be it Scott Sims or others. Yeah. um, Who've been removed from their committees or their chairships or their critic, or sorry, not critic roles, their government, but um, Before speaking out against yes. one one thing or the other, or voting out against it, yeah, Mister Erskine Smith, I think is the only one you could plausibly remove from a critical role. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that's sort of my example here is why I'm critical of the use of the phrase cabinet solidarity to refer to parliamentary solidarity. Well, because it's
0: kinda of like there's a caucus solidarity element to it, Yeah. Right. Like the, but cabinet in, in and these more. Specific.
1: In Canada, this yeah. solidarity exists in our political parties uh, or in our in our caucuses to an extent that is widely criticized and not seen in, you know, in the,
0: Australia, in especially Australia,
1: <laughs> the UK, yeah. a bunch of other systems, the United States, not really the same system, but still um, but in Canada we're actually one of the most like closely held closed insular caucuses. Yeah. You're
0: um, the only one to call them caucuses. In,
1: in a in a democratic system. Yeah. Probably dumb. anywhere.
0: Yeah, actually do you think caucus is an Algonquin word? So that's why I, I just we, I think we've covered We probably this on have. Before. But for <laughs> people who have not listened before and not heard that fun fact, it is very much a fun fact. In the UK they're called parliamentary groups or parliamentary parties, which is much less
1: fun as a word. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it's dumb. Um, so I mean I think the same rules basically apply to MP... Or apply to Parliamentary Secretaries as apply to MPs. Uh, I mean, there were six MPs that dissented. I, I haven't gone through all, each of their roles. Um, when it's in numbers like that, it'll be harder for the government to punish them. Yeah. Um, but I think if I were in the government's shoes, um, punishing the Parliamentary Secretary of the six... Yeah. ...would perhaps be the, the way to, to send, send the message. Yeah. So
0: while there may not be a... Stated principle of, of parliamentary secretary solidarity. There may in practice actually be there, one.
1: There is a well understood, yeah. and the bar is certainly higher with parliamentary
0: secretaries though, than with backbench emphasis. Though I do wonder what would happen if he had not voted against it but merely been publicly critical. That would be an interesting test case, and I suppose uh, we will we will wait until such an instance well, arises. Well,
1: I can give you an example of this. Uh, Wayne Easter was quite publicly critical as the chair of Finance Committee of the Small Business Tax Cuts of the Liberals. Yes, but that or was not it's a... Not small, uh, not small business tax cuts, but rather small business... Um, tax changes oh yes the, uh, um, the sort of
0: uh, anti uh, anti sprinkling yeah kind of,
1: all, all of those measures yeah um, that the government introduced I guess that's a year and a summer, half summer of 2017 uh, yeah, yeah about a year and a half ago um, and he maintained as chair of the committee uh, I mean the government eventually backed down and people like Wayne Long and Wayne Easter were held the Wayne, up as, the Atlantic Waynes <laughs> uh, Wayne Squared were held up as the champions yes. on the government side of fighting back against those and to my knowledge they weren't punished Okay, well, yeah, they're not parliamentary secretaries, though. No, but I'm saying when you compare that to the Scott Sims of the world who voted against versus speaking against, who was on a committee and he was removed for voting against or for voting in support of a motion, I think is what it was. Well, I
0: mean, that's the...
1: Yeah, there's always
0: the problem of, of, uh, like, there's the whip, right? And, like, if you vote against your party on a whip vote, things are going to happen. But it's just, like... I think the explicit, like, will he be removed uh, from his post as Prime Secretary, and would he have been just for speaking out against it, I think is an interesting question um, that remains to be seen, I suppose. Uh, That will probably
1: do it for us today, I think. You don't want to do it? Well, okay, I think we we would be remiss if we did not note, you you mentioned in passing, but C89, which is uh, a fairly unique piece of legislation going through the Parliament. Well, sadly, not very unique. Uh, unfortunately it's reasonably unique once every four years that you have to do well i mean back to work legislation is uh yeah it's it's pretty rare and i mean it's not unique in terms of yeah last scene
0: scene from a liberal party like what six months ago that's uh (laughs) yeah once in a blue moon it it is rare
1: in terms of uh how it's processed through parliament
0: yes that's true it is procedurally interesting because of course liberal parties will always attack organized
1: labor given the chance so remember that folks (laughs) so i I would just note and for anyone questioning how this is going through parliament right now um there were i mean so there's a government motion uh government motion number 25 to push through c89 um basically in one day friday there were votes on fridays there was evening debate on friday which is basically never happens yeah uh and you had the ndp sort of quasi storm out post-vote. Yeah. Um, You had these uh, uh, liberal MPs dissenting. It certainly uh, would have ruined a lot of MPs' constituency plans for the weekend. And now it's over into the Senate. And while the Senate is impossible to follow because they're audio only and no one understands how Senate procedure works... um, The scroll! It'll be... be, It'll be interesting to see how the legislation progresses through the Senate, because this is typically the type of legislation that you require minority, or sorry, a majority, and you push it through hard and fast. Yeah. Um, but with the ISG in the Senate, it'll be interesting to see how well they are whipped by Harder and company. Um, as of recording, I believe they're in sort of the quasi-committee stage, so it still seems to be going through. Um, but getting uh, independent senators to vote on something at second reading is a lot easier than to get it um, through committee yeah. SAAS amendment or through third reading.
0: Can I just can I get my pet peeve about back to work legislation from from this government? No. And that's gonna, all I'm gonna, folks. I'm going to anyway. do it anyway. I'm going to do it anyway. This is like the party that like drapes itself in, in the flag in the charter at every possible opportunity. And like collective bargaining is a charter right. And, like, this has been established many, many times. And this is the one charter right. They have absolutely no problem asserting parliamentary sovereignty
1: because it might interrupt parcel delivery. The Department of Justice has issued a a charter statement on it that would beg to differ with your... uh, Have they, actually? With your assessment, yeah. That is fascinating. Senators were talking about it. Because, I mean, there have been previous issues with back-to-work legislation. uh, And their charter compliance, uh, I believe it was the Ontario Superior Court, once ruled... Um, one of the attempts at back to work legislation on a constitutional, but it was in relation to very specific provisions of it. And the liberals through this legislation are basically saying we've learned um, from the wrongs of the past. I think some of those were conservative as well um and this is charter compliant back to work uh, legislation progressive
0: per- comprehensive and progressive uh, back to work legislation and it
1: has to do with sort of what they bind individuals to whether they're binding them to yeah. well okay
0: yeah so this is the thing right is like the idea is oh well, we're just you know forcing them back to the table and let's just so they're going to negotiate but it's like it, and they were saying they were hoping even before they tabled the back to work legislation after announcing that they would be in fact tabling it that oh, we, we hope they'll go back to the table if you're the bosses and you know that the government is bailing you out in 48 hours and they're saying well you should go back to the table you know you're not gonna go back to the goddamn table like you have no incentive to do so you're about to win if you just don't talk for 48 hours it's ridiculous anyway i absolutely 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 despise when liberals do this because they manage to be smug about it in like the most irritating way right at the same time as they're like doing exactly what they say they wouldn't every single time and every single time organized labor always turns out for the liberals anyway and you have jerry diaz that i'm sure is going to endorse the liberals um so that'll be fun and an edifying spectacle i'm sure uh and yet they just keep pulling the football out every goddamn time at every level of government it's awesome keep falling for it guys you look real smart every time anyway that will do it for us today you don't want to talk about door-to-door delivery? We, we talk about them. Yeah, I know. You love your, you love seniors breaking their hips at the end. <laughs> um, Our beer this week was also from Collective Arts, as it's kind of becoming a staple. It was their Raspberry Sour. Uh, it was delicious. I really liked it. Um, not as sort of like the... Not as much of the kind of like uh, vaguely hoppy kettle sour taste as a, a lot of theirs. Kind of like the the Prophets of Nomads, I think, has that real like uh, asperity to it. This did not have that. It was very juicy, but a bit sour, but more like a berry way.
1: Profits and Nomads isn't a kettle sour. A I food. know it's it's a so I'm okay. aware of that.
0: I'm just saying that it has a lot of their their sort of like more kettle sours have that asperity that. Is sure.
1: Yes. I will accept your. Concession. I would say it
0: was, yeah. It's a lot of their sours are more similar to that goes than they were to this sour. Sure. I would say.
1: I have the Harvest Saisal one in my fridge. That is that the pumpkin spice yeah, it's a, one? It's a pumpkin-y pumpkiny. <laughs> pumpkin spice latte beer yeah i had it i had it without knowing that it it was pumpkin
0: spice i just thought it was like a harvest sour saison that sounds good and yeah it's a bit weird is it it's a bit weird the beer itself is good but yeah the the sort of spicy sort of pumpkin stuff is a bit
1: odd so i had this one last year and i don't remember minding it i wasn't paying it keen attention um there's one other pumpkin stout that comes out around this time of year I actually haven't seen it yet it's by big rig it's one of the only stouts i've ever poured down the drain Although, although, oh, I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember although mentioning I have it. friends that deeply love it, but I yeah. just could not do it. Excellent. Pumpkin well, stouts.
0: <laughs> yeah, no good. Uh, well, that will do it for us this week. So, once again, thank you for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at Twerp Pod. And with that,
1: goodbye.